Well, if you have a Bible in uh, hard copy or in, in a digital form on your phone or a tablet, go ahead and open it up. We're going to complete chapter 9 this morning, starting in verse 30, but then we're also going to work down through verse 13 of chapter 10. Uh, so as you, as you get yourself situated there, uh, are, there, are there people here who enjoy people watching, people watchers? Categorically, the best place to people watch is the airport. There is no better uh, situation to do that. And it's because it's like the full range of human emotion and experience is on display there. There are really tearful goodbyes, and it's obvious to see those. There are very joyful, um, like, reunitings with, you know, little kids with signs because mom's been gone for a couple weeks or dad's been gone for a couple weeks. There are the people who uh, very clearly are having ticket issues. There are the workers who are on the receiving end and not responsible for the ticket issues. There are people whose flights are delayed or who are in long layovers. And you can just see that. And it illustrates the power of observation. Observation might not tell you everything you want to know about a situation or a person, but it often gives you the general sense of what is going on. I'm not the only person who, in the middle of like my people watching, like you start to teeter the line between uh, like appropriate observer and I want to get closer and then you become like creepy. Like I want to know more about why this argument's taking place, but you've got to like demonstrate some self-control. Observation doesn't tell you everything you could want to know, but it gives you the general sense. This morning, I'm just going to read from Romans 9.30 all the way down to Romans 10.13. I think we could stand to be, uh, all of us, myself included, just more generally observant when we're reading scripture. Because at times, right on the surface, there are, there are items that are like screaming at you, if you will. And this is one of those passages. So if you've got it in front of you, kind of look down and follow along with me. If you don't have it, just listen. There are some things that just jump off the page in these 17 verses. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to, stumbling over, or to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer concerning them is for their salvation." I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of, the right, ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For in the end, our, for Christ is the end of the law uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes, since Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The one who will do these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What stands out? What's repeated? What do you notice as 
you read a passage or as we listen to this passage. Well, let me give, let me just observe the observable here. The word righteousness is used 12 times in a 17 verse stretch. That's got to mean something. The words faith or believe are used nine times. So there's something about the righteousness and there's something about the faith and the believing that must be important here in this passage of scripture. Twice, the exact same phrase is quoted from the Old Testament, that these people, a certain people, will never be put to shame. And then there's something about Israel, Israelites and Jews as contrasted to Gentiles or Greek people. You can just look at the surface of the passage and read it and stop and say, there must be something about righteousness and faith that is important here in this particular section of scripture. There must be something about those things and there's this statement that people will never be put to shame. And you don't even have to get, you know, you don't need a theology degree, you don't need to know Greek, you don't have to have had like a Bible study major or something like that to do the observing, like the airport. What is the general sense here? And then... You can get a little bit closer to the passage, if you will, and try to determine exactly what the relationship with all of these things is, and then look at the broader context, and how does this all fit into the larger letter? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. But in your own study of the Bible, in your own reading of Scripture, which I, you know, I hope everybody's doing regularly, this kind of observation is available everywhere. What just jumps off the page at you? What's readily available? What's readily available this morning is that there's something about righteousness and faith and Israelites and Gentiles and something about not being put to shame. So let's kind of step our way through this. What we're going to see this morning is that in Christ, there is a consistent salvation available for countless people. A consistent salvation for countless people. In Romans 9, Paul was very, very concerned with making sure Israel understands This justification that I've been talking about, you need it because not all Israel is Israel. Not all children of Abraham, descendants of Abraham, are just going to be saved. God's been separating and splitting and there's been a choosing and not everybody's going to be saved. So you need to be justified, Jews, just like everybody else. And here in chapter 10, Paul is going to scream And there's only one way that it happens. You've been pursuing it incorrectly up to this point. If you think that you're going to be justified by a means other than the rest of humanity, you're wrong. So Paul begins to unpack this, starting in verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. 31. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Five times the word righteousness is used in two verses. And it's about two different groups of people. There are Gentiles. They're not striving after righteousness, and yet they're finding it. That's what Paul says in verse 30. They're not striving and yet finding. They didn't pursue it, but they have obtained it. Literally, what verse 30 says is the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. That your version might say that they've taken hold of righteousness. They have found righteousness. 
The word for obtained there has almost like an aggressive connotation to it that English makes it hard to bring out. It's almost as if Paul is saying the Gentiles who are not striving after being righteous, they have found righteousness and they have snatched it. They've taken hold of it. They're grasping it for themselves. They've laid a hold of righteousness and it's like they are not letting go. It's this almost aggressive sort of act that they've done. And that leaves us with a question. How? Well, the end of verse 30 tells us they've done that by faith. And there's a second question. Well, what does it mean to not be pursuing it? Like if they're not pursuing it, what's the inverse of that? Well, Paul paints that for us in verse 31. Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. So the Gentiles are not striving, but they're finding righteousness. And the Israelites are striving after it, but they're stumbling. They're not finding. They're not achieving what it is that they hoped for. What was the means by which they were pursuing it? Obedience to the law. Not Roman law, not a system of government, but Old Testament law. And yet, literally, they have not arrived at it. They've not achieved it. Instead, they've stumbled. They didn't pursue it by faith. Verse 32, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And there in verse 33, Paul puts together two verses out of the book of Isaiah. The first one comes from Isaiah 8, 14. The second verse is from Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 8, 14 says, he will be a stumbling or a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Isaiah 28, 16 says, see, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable, will not be put to shame as it's rendered here. Paul puts those two verses together to display that Christ, the cornerstone, has become something to stumble over for these Israelites who are striving and yet something to grasp onto for these Gentiles who are not. Let me paint a picture. I'm borrowing this from a commentator named Kent Hughes. He gives this illustration of like all of humanity streaming down one really wide, long road. And in the middle of that huge stream of people, like a herd of cattle, if you will, God drops a rock. He sets it in the middle of the the road. And these Jewish people, faithful Jewish people, think that the goal here is for them to get themselves to the end of the road, and they're not seeing the stone, and so they're just stumbling over it. Meanwhile, there are all these Gentiles, everybody who's not Jewish, who's not Israelite, and they're coming upon this stone and they're clutching on it. They're just grabbing onto it. No more walking. I found this stone. I'm climbing on top of it. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to stand here and be totally firm. No more tripping. No more stumbling like all of the Israelites are doing. Israel's pursuing righteousness by works and they're failing. They're not arriving. They're stumbling. The Gentiles... They're not pursuing righteousness at all, but they're finding Christ and they're snatching him and they're holding on to him by faith. They're clinging to him. What's the point for us? Israel is stumbling and Paul's going to give the antidote to that here in chapter 10. But what do we do with that? Let me offer an application for us. It's true for Israel in the, you know, the early centuries following Christ, it's true for us today in 2018. And that's that self-righteousness is blinding. 
If you get locked in on a self-righteous plan for justifying yourself, for making yourself innocent before the Lord, you'll miss the truth of God's provision. You'll miss the truth of Christ. Not only that, but you will wear yourself out in a tireless, joyless slavery to your own self-righteous system, a system that can't ever bring you the life that you hoped it would, and a system that offers you nothing in eternity. Let me give you some examples. Some people think that they're going to justify themselves with religion. When I mean religion, I'm including everything, including people who just do churchy stuff. You just show up on Sunday mornings. You sit and you listen and you, you kind of rotely sing the songs or maybe you volunteer somewhere or you partake in communion alongside everybody else. And there's this thought that this religious stuff is going to be enough for me to stand before the Lord and have him declare me innocent. But all of that churchy stuff, your involvement in a small group, your volunteering, your giving, whatever it might be, if you set those things up as the means by which you think you're going to be saved, you're blind. You've been blinded by your own attempt to justify yourself in the sight of the Lord. And at the end of all things, that will come up short. Some people set their own morality up as the means by which they think they're going to save themselves. That they're just going to good person their way into heaven. And if that's the case, you've blinded yourself. They think that I'll just rescue all the cats from the trees. I'll help all the little old ladies across the street. I'll shovel all the driveways in the neighborhood during the winter. I'll mow all the yards on our street during the summer. And all of my goodness, all of my good morality is going to make it so that God looks at me at the end of all things and says, you're so wonderful, we're lucky to have you. That that's what's going to happen at a moment of eternal judgment. And it's blinding. That kind of self-righteousness is absolutely blinding. Knowledge. And let's just even you know, scale that down just to knowledge of biblical stuff. You could know all about Jesus and doctrine and totally miss faith. You could spout off every Old Testament story or sing your song that lists all the books of the Bible in order. Maybe you won all the, war- the awards at Awana when you were growing up you might be able to just absolutely obliterate everybody in the room at Bible trivia. And yet, if there's no faith, then that knowledge is useless. It can't save you. It won't save you. You're blinded by that. There's a thought that exists of just kind of innate general human goodness. Well, I think people are mostly good and therefore... God would be lucky to have all of us alongside him for all of eternity. That's blinding. Paul says about the Israelites, they've tried to do this by the law and they're blinded. And the same is true for us today. And maybe you're sitting in here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I've placed my faith in Christ. I've been justified by faith, Tim. I'm not trying to be, you know, self-righteous in order to save myself. Well, let me kind of press a little bit further. I think oftentimes, and I can fall victim to this myself, that we fully believe that we're justified by Christ, but that then I need to like impress God. And so I set up my own system by which I think God is going to be really impressed with all the things that Tim Fritzen did as a Christian. And so the question becomes, if 
We know that these kinds of things can't save us. Why do we live as though they're the things that are going to sustain us? Or if we know that these aren't the things that are going to make us innocent before the Lord, why do we think that they're the things that are going to make us impressive before the Lord? And so in my own daily living as a follower of Christ, I can get blinded by my own need to prove myself right before the Lord, even though I've stated in my heart and in my mind that Jesus is the only means by which that can happen. Self-righteousness is absolutely blinding. It's a a self-righteous kind of way to live, to say that I was saved by Jesus Christ, but ultimately I'm going to be impressive in the eyes of the Lord because of all the stuff that Tim Fritzen does. That's blinding. It's exhausting. It's tiring. And maybe, maybe at the very, very best, All that self-righteousness over here for myself does is make me look impressive in the eyes of people. But that's fleeting and fickle and obviously and ultimately and obviously will mean nothing when I stand before the Lord. And yet we get blinded by it. We make that the end goal. All of these things, religious activity at a church, morality, knowledge of the Bible, those are great things so long as we do them not to be saved, but because we've been saved. So long as we engage in these sorts of activities as the outflow of Jesus Christ being the rock upon which we stand, not as the means by which we think we're going to take hold of the rock. Because if that's the case, we're just gonna stumble our way into an eternity apart from the Lord. What we do in response to our faith is just that. It's a response to our faith. The small group you're a part of, the serving that you do, the prayer that you engage in, the Bible reading you do on your own, the conversations you have with each other, the way you allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you. We cannot allow ourselves to think that those things will save us. We have to keep them in the right spot, that they are overflows of having been saved. What's a gospel-centered life look like? It's one that sees the stone in the middle of the road, a stone laid in Zion, and just clutches onto it and snatches it and puts its whole life on top of it and says, this is the thing that matters. This is the thing that saves. This is the thing that sustains. This is what's gonna make me innocent. When I stand before the Lord, the only thing he's gonna be impressed by is the work of his son on the cross on my behalf. And I will be covered by that for all of eternity. Self-righteousness is blinding. Let's, and Israel was blind by that. We can be blind by it as well. Let's go on. Paul starts in what we have is chapter 10, verse one. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Every chapter in, uh, of 9, 10, and 11 of this section begins with Paul giving a personal identification with the Israelite people. He Over and over, he's just displaying his heart for the Israelites. And here he says, my prayer for them is for their salvation. There's a a thought process that exists when it comes to issues of like election, like we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, that if you believe in election in any sort of way, then it must be the case that you just don't care about the lost. You become apathetic about people who are far from Jesus because if God is the one that's ultimately going to call them and save them, then what's it matter what I do? 
the very person that writes about the mystery of God choosing and calling and all that that we've talked about over the last two weeks says just a paragraph and a half later, my prayer for them is for their salvation. Any sort of like intellectual thoughts about election don't make us uncaring about those who are lost. No, our heart's desire for them is to be saved. And so Paul says, I pray toward that end. And then he goes on. He talks about Israel's zealousness or their sincerity. Verses two and three, I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Are there any math teachers in here? Anybody? Math teacher? One? Be proud of it. (laughs) Math teachers are saints. Let me tell you why. Partial credit. There's virtually no other subject that you study where you can get the answer absolutely entirely wrong and yet still get points on the question. I took calculus when I was in high school, mostly as a means to not have to take math when I went to college. I got very little correct in calculus. Of all the tests that I took over the course of that year, I think I maybe landed on the right answer at the bottom of the page two or three times. Here's what happens for the most part. The math teachers are going to rush at me later. For the most part in calculus, there's a step or two of calculus that you do at the top of your sheet of notebook paper, and then you work a page of algebra. You take a derivative, and then you solve for like nine variables in order to actually get down to the answer. Here's what would happen when Tim took calculus. I'd make a mistake at the very top of the page. To this day, I don't know what a derivative is. So I would butcher that step but then I would work my algebra all the way down in this like flawless manner, right? So whatever answer I got to, and I showed every step, whatever answer I arrived at at the bottom of the page was totally wrong, but at least I got to it in a consistent manner, right? (laughs) Zealous, sincere, but totally incorrect. Paul says, that's Israel. And there's no partial credit with the Lord. You could be totally sincere, very zealous, very passionate, and just be wrong. Paul says, that's what's happening with Israel. Rather than submitting to Christ, the rock, they're trying to build their own system of righteousness, and it's a complete impossibility. Rather than submitting to the Lord, they've been striving after their own, and they're not arriving or achieving at the at the righteousness that they thought they would. They've missed it. They've stumbled over it. They're zealous, but mistaken. They're passionate, but just incorrect. And so he he goes on and he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's not the law that's going to make us righteous, Christ put an end to that. He put an end to the law of righteousness. He is the telos, is the word for end, T-E-L-O-S. It means fulfillment or completion. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He kept it in the way that it was intended to be kept, and he's the only one that ever did it, and you simply cannot. He's the completion of the law. He put an end to it. It's not that we don't, 
care how scripture commands us to live. That's not the case at all. Romans 7, 4 tells us we died to the law. Romans 6, 15 says that we're no longer under the law, meaning that we're not subject to it for our righteousness before God because Jesus fulfilled it for us. He is the end of that. When Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross there and he cries out at the end of his life, it is finished. All one word there, to telestai, telos, end, done, finished. It's over. Christ is the end of that. And then verse five, since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. That's a quotation out of Exodus, or Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus is the book that lists all the Old Testament laws, all the commands, all the prohibitions, all the sacrifices, all the things associated with worshiping the Lord. It's, it's all listed there in exhaustive detail in the book of Leviticus. And Moses in the middle of that says, the one who does this will live. Implicit inside that, the one who does all of this perfectly every single time in every single way for all of your life, the one who does this will live. It's absolutely impossible. The Israelites were zealous about it. Jewish Pharisees, Jewish teachers of the law, I mean, they were doing everything they could to fulfill every piece of that. And yet it's just completely impossible. It's absolutely futile. And Paul knew that firsthand as a Pharisee. In Philippians, he describes himself and he says that he's more zealous than any other Jew that he, as far as his like legalistic righteousness went, he was faultless in that sort of way. And yet it was absolutely futile. Why? Because Jesus put an end to that. His self-righteousness was blinding. His zeal was misleading. And he's pleading with Israel, you need to understand this. Not all Israel is Israel. It was never intended that way from the very, very beginning. You won't be saved by your attempts at self-righteousness. Your zeal and your passion is mistaken. What's the application for us today? Well, it's the exact same thing. Our zeal can be misleading. Our passion, our sincerity can just be wrong. Let me illustrate by talking about some religions, and I'm going to build this as a funnel, okay? There are universalists who just say, you know what, all this, all this religion stuff, it's all going to the same place. It all points in the same direction. The end of all those roads is the exact same spot. I don't doubt that those people are sincere in their belief about that. But they're wrong. That's not the case. Most of us maybe don't regularly interact with, let's work down the funnel a little bit, a, a person who is Buddhist. If you know anything about Buddhism or you've even just been down on the plaza when the Hare Krishnas are down there, that's a branch of Buddhism, you know that those people are, they're passionate. I mean, they're sincere about it. Some of them enter into life as a monk, which is incredibly self-depriving and they spend a lot of their time in meditation and in prayer and whatnot and they're sincere, they're zealous, they're passionate, but they're misled. It's wrong. It's just false. It's, it's incorrect. Maybe some of us have interacted with someone who's Muslim. They're of an Islamic background. Those people are sincere. 
Some of them are incredibly zealous, yet misled. Maybe here closer to us in the Northland, you've maybe interacted with someone who's Mormon. They're really, really sincere. If you know anything about the upbringing of a Mormon, um, a child in the Mormon church, they wake up at like 5 a.m. when they're in high school. And they go to seminary before they go off to school. And they spend a couple hours in classes learning the ins and outs of Mormon doctrine and Mormon belief. Then they go off to school and a lot of them off to uh, their school day in high school. And then a lot of them go back to the church in the evenings. And then when they're in college, they get sent out on a mission and a lot of them pause their life for two. I mean, they're passionate. They're zealous. They're sincere. I don't doubt any of that. but it's, it's misleading. Let me press even a little bit closer. We live here in the Bible Belt and you know, kind of middle of America and in the South. There's a sincere belief that like, well, I've just, I was born Christian. I've always been Christian. I'm like, I don't doubt someone's sincerity or, or I don't question what they're saying about their family or whatever the case might be. Like they're sincere, they're, maybe zealous about that and they would affirm that passionately but our family isn't the way that we're saved. Maybe they went through confirmation and then, you know, well, I was confirmed so I'm saved. Our zeal can be misleading. The Israelites understand they have a need for righteousness. They're zealous. They're sincere. They think that the law is the way that's going to happen, that they're passionate about that, and they're just wrong. In trying to save themselves by living according to the law, they're zealous and they're mistaken. We can be zealous and be mistaken. Let me just combine these two points. Maybe in your self-righteousness, you're really zealous. Like if I'm just a good enough person and I'm trying to be a good person in all ways, all the time, I'm trying to do the right thing, the moral thing in every situation. You can be super, super zealous about that and then blind to your need for a savior and misled about what's gonna justify you at the end of all things. Let me press into it this way. Christian, fellow believer, brothers and sisters, you might be really, really zealous about your attempts to be impressive before the Lord. And you might be really, really sincere in your attempts to just kind of muscle your way into living like the quote unquote Christian life and that that's gonna be the thing that you stand before the Lord and he's gonna like applaud when you walk in at the end of all things because of how great you were as a Christian. And you can be zealous about that. And you would be saved in that moment. Praise the Lord, thanks to the work of Jesus Christ. But I think you'll be disappointed when God doesn't jump off the throne and bow down to you in all of your greatness. Zealous, but misled. I've had, I've had a couple people as we've been working through Romans who have said, don't you feel like you're up there just saying the same thing every week? A little. <laughs> I'll tell you why that's okay with me. Because I know my own heart, that it's feeble and forgetful, that it's fallible, that it fails, that it falls at times, and that I need to be reminded 
him that you could get up there and you could give a thousand whiz-bang sermons that leave people just with their minds spinning and their jaws dropped open and I'm gonna get to heaven and God's not gonna be one iota more impressed with me than he is with anyone else who just faithfully tried to follow Jesus. Because when I stand there before the Lord, he's going to be impressed by his son on the cross. That's what he's gonna be impressed by. And so, yeah, how many times do I need to preach to myself that self-righteousness is blinding every single day? How many times do I need to preach to myself that my zeal can be misleading every single day? You know, Tim, is it rough to get up there and kind of preach on justification for a year out of Romans? No, because I'm preaching to myself about justification all the time. Paul's begging Israel, see that you need to be saved. See that your self-righteousness has blinded you, that your passion is sincere, that your zeal is there, but it's just in the wrong direction. And then he offers the antidote, starting in verse six. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your heart, and in your mouth. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. And Paul's going to go on. All those Old Testament quotations there come from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Starts in verse 11. Paul uses Moses from Deuteronomy to substantiate Moses from, Exodus, or from Leviticus chapter 18. Moses there in Deuteronomy is saying, look, you don't have to go searching for God. He's given you the law. Here it is. You don't have to go up into heaven to try to find it for yourself. You don't have to go down to the abyss and try to pull it up for yourself. He's given it to you. It's near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. Paul's statement is that you couldn't climb up there and get it for yourself anyway. You couldn't go down and pull Jesus up from the dead. He did that on your behalf anyway. He is near to you, in your mouth, in your heart. Your effort is totally ineffective in that because God has made Jesus Christ completely available to you. You don't need to do anything to achieve that for yourself. You don't need to climb your way up to Jesus Christ. You don't need to try to pull him up from the dead. Your striving is unnecessary. He is near. He's in your heart and he's in your mouth. Your effort your ritualistic obedience, Israel, they're not essential for righteousness. Instead, something else is. And what is that thing? We'll keep going here in verse nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says that everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your effort is ineffective. Faith is essential. And then Paul just boils down, what does that faith look like? Well, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's not a, those aren't magic words. That's not like a, you know, like a ritualistic, you say these things and then everything is good. He's illustrating a position of the heart. One that says Jesus is Lord. That I am who I am, that God is, that's who Jesus is. He is Lord over all things. If you've got, a, you know, you can flip a page over to the end of Romans 11. Paul's gonna end this whole section. 
And he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and of knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid. And then verse 36. When you confess Jesus as Lord, this is what you're confessing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You're confessing Jesus as Lord. You're saying that my heart is in a position that says from him and to him and through him are all things. And his is the glory forever, for now and forevermore. That's what Jesus is Lord means. He is God. That's who Christ is. And then you believe in your heart. Well, what are you believing? You're believing the gospel, the good news. Where does that gospel end? It's Interesting the way Paul says this in verse nine. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, the end point of the gospel is not with Jesus lying dead and lifeless in a tomb outside Jerusalem. No, it ends with a living, risen, exalted, glorified, death-defeating Savior who's ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Romans chapter eight. Interceding on your behalf. You confess with your mouth that he's Lord You believe in your heart that he has been risen and defeated death and he intercedes on your behalf and he's the one that's going to proclaim you innocent and righteous at the right hand of God. That's what faith is. You need righteousness and faith is the means by which it happens. It's available and accessible and simple. Verses 11, 12, and 13, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. The Lord richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All people, regardless of their ethnic heritage, will be richly blessed with the gracious gift of righteousness. And Paul wants Israel to understand you need that and it includes you. A Jewish person who listened to like Romans 1 through 8 be read or they had the text themselves and they read it, they would have been yes and amening all of that and thinking to themselves, these darn Gentile sinners, they need this so bad. And Paul gets to Romans chapter 9 and he says, yo, Israel, you too. And the means by which you get it is the exact same way, faith. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So I'll stand up here this morning and say, yo, people sitting in this church, there's only one means by which you're justified and you need it. It includes you, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And if that's the means by which we're saved, it's also the means by which we'll be sustained. God's grace through Jesus Christ in all things. You grab onto that stone in the middle of the road and you just clutch onto it with all of your life. You throw yourself up on top of that and you say, it doesn't matter what happens around this rock because there's no condemnation when I stand upon it. There can be no separation from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And if I stand on the rock, nothing can shake me. That's the other observation from this. Two times, once at the end of the quotation from Isaiah chapter 28 and once here at the end in Romans uh, 10 verse 11, you won't be put to shame. The word of God has not fallen. That's where Paul started all of this in Romans chapter nine. That means you can't be put to shame. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There can be no separation 
from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Your glorification is absolutely certain. The Holy Spirit is present inside of you, just applying all of the benefits of your salvation to you. The one who doesn't stumble over the stone but makes that stone their cornerstone will not be put to shame. So you might have rolled in here this morning, fellow Christian, feeling like there's something that's gone on in your life that's maybe disqualified you from the gift of God's grace. Paul says, no, you cannot be shaken. You cannot stumble there because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, you might have rolled in here, fellow Christian, all self-propped up on your own self-righteousness and your own zeal for doing Christian stuff and being this great Christian. Romans 10 says, well, that's wonderful, but the only thing that matters is the cornerstone. That's the only thing that's going to be impressive to the Lord. And that doesn't mean we cast aside the way that we live. It doesn't mean that it doesn't, none of those things matter. It just means that we get before the Lord and we realize that the whole reason we're standing and not falling is because of the rock, not because of something that we're going to do. That kind of life cannot be condemned. It cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It cannot be put to shame. song that we sang a couple before I came up here. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that those words are true. Lord, that if my salvation were up to me, I would be doomed. If being impressive in your sight was up to me, I would be doomed. But instead, God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there will come a moment where I will stand before you dressed solely in the righteousness of Christ and that will be enough to declare me innocent and that will be the only thing that's impressive in that moment. And I think I'll just fall onto my knees and sing hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. He has broken every chain. There's salvation in his name. Jesus Christ, my living hope, my cornerstone, the rock upon which I will stand. God, I pray that every person realizes that not just for their salvation, God, but also for the way that they live their daily life as a follower of you, God. No condemnation, no separation, not because of anything that we've done or that we will do, but because of a rock that was laid in Zion. Lord, would we clutch it and cling to it and throw our lives on top of it and in that spot know that we will never be put to shame. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.